This is Casey. I just wanted to hop on real quick and let you know that this is going to be a two-part episode with Christy Buttles. What you're about to listen to is part one. And it was really amazing having her on the show to share her journey and her testimony. And I really hope you enjoy listening. Thank you. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Rabbit Hole Show. As always, we all have a story. We all have struggles. And the good news is we're not alone. And this week, have a new friend of mine, um, a friend of my mom's um, for a while now, and um, a member of Carmel Baptist Church. And uh, my friend Christy Buttles is here to share her story and talk um, about some of her struggles in life and um, kind of how she's gotten through them. So, Christy, welcome. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm glad to have you here. And we met at Starbucks last week. And um, you kind of shared your story with me in depth and it's a powerful one. Um, and you shared, you've done a lot of writing and some speaking in you know, other countries. Um, and you know, I wanted to give you, if you wanted it and you accepted, you know, this platform podcast to share, uh, your story and some, um, part of your life and kind of where you're at today and how you've gotten here. Um, cause it hadn't been easy, but, um, as I always say, you don't know a man or a woman until you know their story. So I'm going to let you um, kind of share your story and um, what you want the people to know and hear. Um, and then we can just have a conversation and go from there. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It's yes. a real honor and privilege and pleasure and joy. Um, I am terrified. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time ever doing anything like this. So I am green as they come. So um, yeah. When we talked, three hours went by fast at Starbucks, by the Very, way. It did not feel like three hours. <laughs> Could not believe it. <laughs> but uh, I think the more we share our personal lives, the more I think people realize we have a lot more in common than not in common. Correct. So um, I think also life can be looked at like a prism and you can turn it a lot of different ways and pull out a lot of different um, perspectives on it. And so thinking about what to share today um, a real common theme, no matter what was swirling around in my crazy life, <laughs> was anxiety. And so I thought maybe touch on that a little bit and kind of see where the conversation goes, because I know anxiety and mental health and getting help is a really big topic today, which I'm so happy that it is. Yep. And I'm so glad that there's so many resources out there for anybody now. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing to be embarrassed of or ashamed. It's not taboo anymore. It's almost like weird if you don't have a therapist now. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So I'm going to just take full advantage of society's like green light to be like, let's talk about it. So um, a little bit on my family history. My I remember my grandmother telling me that our family had bad nerves. That's what they called it mm -hmm. back then. It was just bad nerves. And <laughs> so pretty much everyone in my on my mom's side, at least had some form of anxiety um, to different debilitating degrees. Um, I watched my mom suffer with that as long as I knew her. I can remember uh, she would actually pass out from her anxiety. Um, I probably hyperventilating and such. She would carry the brown little paper lunch bag in her purse mm. to breathe into. Um, I remember one time I walked, a, the house doctor made a call and I kind of was spying to see what in the world was going on in that bedroom. And she was laying there and he's standing over her with smelling salts and mm. she had like passed out again. And she just had a very, very hard time with anxiety. Um, she was on tranquilizers for it for many, many years. And um, I kind of watched what it did to her. And it's it's almost like this Anxiety was like this invisible family member, this unwanted family member that you just <laughs> wanted just not to be at the table. But it was mm -hmm. like a shadow. It was like everywhere you went, it followed you. Yeah. And so I do think some of it is genetic. I think some of it is environmental. I think, you know, a learned behavior, like we can catch our our fears sometimes from our parents and I have a huge aversion to roaches <laughs> and I have greatly, unfortunately, passed it on to one of my kids. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you saw me freak out at these things and now <laughs> you can't handle them. And I'm, I know that's me and I'm sorry. <laughs> so, um, so I have been on both sides of that where I have given and I have received yeah. um, different anxiety and fears. Um, so, uh, yeah, I watched her, her really, um, really struggle and, 
I absorbed all of that. Like I was an incredibly fearful child. I was scared of just everything. I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and where thunderstorms and hurricanes are just something you learn to live with. And I would make us all sit on the couch, um, dog and flashlights and water. And we had to huddle together on the couch until it was over. And I would physically just shake uncontrollably. Mm. I was scared of everything. Um, Some of that thanks to um, my stepfather, who was not a nice person. I'll just leave that there for now. And so I had a very unhealthy fear of authority, which did not do me any favors in school. (laughs) So I was like, like, I always stayed well within the lines of society's rules because I was scared to get in trouble and break a rule. I was pretty boring and vanilla as far as that. I was a party <laughs> pooper, <laughs> but um, but that's where I was comfortable because when you fly under the radar, you don't get in trouble. Correct. Um, so anyway, back to the anxiety piece. Um, I watched my mom come off of tranquilizers, which was great, and um, that transition was hard for her, but I was super super proud of her that she did it, and that was about the time that she got divorced for the second time, and so um. It was a whole new world for a house of three ladies. I was 12. Um, my sister was 14 and my mom. So basically, if you start from there, um, whether we like it or not, as teenagers, our parents are just the center of our world, right? They got to mm-hmm. sign our permission slips. They give us permission to go places and who we can hang out with, that kind of thing. So she was um, the center of my world. And so she got cancer when I was 16 and had a short 11 month battle with that and passed away before my 17th birthday. And um, so the night before, and there's more to that, but I know again, (laughs) out of respect for time. um, So the night before her funeral, um, a lot had just happened. I had gotten into a car accident that night before her funeral and totaled my car. And leading up to that point, um, the anxiety was really out of control. It gave me IBS. It um, gave me a lot of different nervous tics. Um, Mm -hmm. that I had, I already had them as a kid, just being scared of my shadow. Um, So like, you know, I would chew the inside of my mouth until it just bled, you Mm. know, or um, a lot of OCD hangups. I had to touch things a certain amount of times or eat, like if I did something with my left foot, I had to do it with my right foot. Left hand had to do with my right hand. Like (laughs) I would drive myself crazy, (laughs) you know, like all of these things that when you get in this momentum building of, of OCD, it just kind of gets, it's like a snowball, just gets bigger and worse. And that's just doesn't lead anywhere healthy or good. Um, so uh, I, I decided that I really didn't care if I lived anymore. I became incredibly um, dark, had a lot of dark thoughts and my way to get out of the situation I was in, which was we, my sister and I had to move out of our home. <clears throat> so we lost our home and we lost everything in our home. Cause our, our, our mom is a single mom making $14,000 a year as a secretary. She, she died in debt. And, um, so we had to sell off everything that we had. Um, and I lost, I had to put my dog down of 13 years. She was my best friend. She was my fourth birthday present. And um, mm. in the stress of all that was happening in our in our life, um, she stopped eating and became quite emaciated. And so it was quite difficult to have to be the one. Uh, my family told me I'd be the one to decide that and to uh, put her down. And that um, took many, many years to heal from. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and I was driving my mom's car, which had been my grandmother's car a 74 Cadillac that I grew up in as a little girl and uh, riding on before car seats were invented. <laughs> it makes me sound really old because <laughs> I'm not really that old. No. But um, I used to sit on the full down armrest as my car seat so I could see out the window. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so uh, my mom was obviously at the end of her cancer journey was no longer to drive. So I was driving that to and it's eight cylinders and it's a big battleship. And thing. Oh, <laughs> it really was. <laughs> it drove so smooth <laughs> and you could go from zero to 60 and like nothing. And I thought, so I know like killing myself is wrong, but what if, what if I just accidentally wrap that car around a telephone pole? Mm-hmm. Could I stand before God and say, you know, I mean, it was just kind of one of those things. And so I started driving very recklessly, very fast when I was alone in the car, mm-hmm. really, really hoping that that telephone pole or the ditch or the Gandy bridge or something would would be my end as a way out to not deal with any of this stuff. So um, 
I was on my way home from choir practice and I had a friend in the car and I was speeding, totally own that. Um, didn't know there was a police officer behind me <laughs> and um, got into a car accident with another car that had run a, a yield sign and we hit head on. Mm. And um, that was a really bad night, <laughs> needless to say. My car was pretty good. Like it was a, it was a steel a powerful ox. tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a broken headlight and a pop tire. <laughs> And that was it. Her, yeah, her Honda Accord, the um, headlights were in her lap. That was not good. So um, so, so anyway, uh, that night, the police officer, um, he was telling me that he was going to charge me with fleeing and looting and all these kinds of things. Cause, and I was like, but I'm in the direction of my house. I was going home because I was living with my grandparents at the time. I didn't really, I, I always say I was in between addresses because I slept at my grandparents house but like all my stuff was at my house so every day getting up for school it was like you know sleep at my grandparents go home shower get get something get my clothes from there go to school then go to the hospital where my mom's treatment was and then go back and do my homework at the hospital and go back to my grandparents it was just that was my daily life for my whole junior year of high school so um very chaotic a little bit (laughs) yeah i I really traumatic i mean yeah you didn't have a home address physically no really no, when uh, at the beginning of my senior year, you have to fill out the emergency contact card. I didn't know what address to put down. I really, I didn't, I didn't know who to put down. And like, that's very traumatic, even at that age. And just, you know, looking back now, you know, some yeah. people wouldn't think that, but that is traumatic. It is. I mean, when you're that age, you, you need a foundation. You, you need a center for all the normal teenage stuff that's already, you know, hard to deal with. And you're having to become an adult, essentially, almost. Overnight. Yeah. Overnight. And with no dad in the picture, um, I grew up real fast. And um, even like if it weren't for my grandparents, like letting me live there, I would have gone into foster care as a senior year high school student. So I didn't even know who to put down as my guardians. Like Mm. it was just all a big mess. So um, so that night of the accident, um, the police officer said uh, he wasn't very kind to me. <laughs> I've I told some, you. <laughs> I've had some that have not been kind to me either. Yeah. I mean, we love, don't get me wrong. We, our family, I love law enforcement. We have so many military mm-hmm. in our family. My husband's a veteran. Um, love, love, love them. But maybe I caught him on a bad day. I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> I've had two that in very dire situations where they didn't have to be nice to me, you know, took the time to help me. And, um, even one even remembered me years later when I got arrested again, which that helped me in that situation. And um, so there are good cops out there. Oh, totally. Just there's a few that give them bad names, unfortunately. As in any profession, really, right? Yep. <laughs> Athletes, <laughs> investment bankers, whatever. Absolutely, because we're all <laughs> Pastors human. Pastors even. Yep. At the end of the day, we're all just people and, mm-hmm. and none of us are perfect. So. Correct. Uh, so, yeah, so he, uh, you know, as I said before, I had an unhealthy fear of authority because of my stepdad. So. Uh, him kind of toying with me in a playful tone that he was maybe going to take me to juvie. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, I've never even been called down by a teacher. Like, and I apologized to him. I was like, I am so sorry. I should not have been driving. Tomorrow's my mom's funeral. I see now that I should not have been driving. And he just looked at me with a stone cold face. He's like, is that the best you can do? Is that all you've got? And I was like, wow. <laughs> And so Keep it together. <laughs> I know, like I was like, I just I'm in my living right now. Yeah. So he called the homicide detective over, which nobody died in our accident, but it was protocol because it was a bad accident. Mm. So um, he came over and uh, the officer said to the detective, get a load of this. She says that she shouldn't have been driving because her the, the excuse she gave me is that her mom died. <sighs> you know, I mean, anyone would be in a fragile state of mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They would be, I would think. And um, and so the detective goes, well, what was your mom's name? And I said her name and he goes, oh, no, she's not lying. I was one of the ones that took her body away last Saturday. And I just kind of felt like I was just going to either throw up or pass out at that point, just because now my mom is a body. You know, mm-hmm. that was just really hard to hear the night before her funeral. So um, the officer had to take me home and um, he put me in the back of the squad car, which is humiliating. And he called it in and he said, uh, I'm driving a Caucasian female age home and i thought first of all it's not really my home second of all that that is who i am now like i've lost my identity i you know i'd lost my serious boyfriend i'd lost my best friend um i lost all my friends because they literally said to my face your life is a train wreck and we don't know what to do with you so yeah and they just kind of all walked away Mm. 
um, didn't have the house, didn't have any of my stuff, had to put my dog down, um, didn't have a dad. Um, so it was, it was a hard time. And I realized that when I had lost the car, it also meant losing my freedom because my license was taken. And I knew that the night that it happened, I was like, Ugh. so now as a teenager, you don't, your wings are clipped, which is a big deal. Yeah. You know, staying home <laughs> now is like, not, <laughs> no, after the pandemic, staying home is not, you know, we all get it. But like when you're a teenager, you just, yeah. you know, no, no. Now I'm ready to be home and be in bed by eight. Yeah, but exactly. <laughs> teenager, you want to be out. You totally want to <laughs> be out. Away from your parents. Yes. It's like, I had this weird schizophrenic life. Like I was one, it was this, all this trauma happening in my house and, and then I had this other side when I was with my friends. I was like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm great. Let's go. Let's go to the mm-hmm. movies. Let's go have the fun. Distraction. To- yeah. And and so I was living a double life is what I was what I really felt mm-hmm. like. And it was taking a huge toll on the anxiety on my mental and physical health. Yeah. Um, so I really thought losing my car and my and my freedom was the bottom. But when he said that I'm a Caucasian female age sixteen, that was a new bottom. And I thought there's nothing left I can lose. There's just nothing left I can lose. No. I've lost my identity. Yeah. And when we were at Starbucks, we talked about this a little bit. When I was on life support and brought into the hospital, un, you know, no I, um, ID or anything, you know, I was Epsilon 9 on the ninth floor. So um, <laughs> sim- similar, yeah. but different situations. But that was something that we kind of discussed in a little bit yeah. on. And, yeah. you know, you were a white Caucasian 16 year old female and I was yeah. Epsilon 9. Yeah. Um, and There's just thankfully really that's nothing. not who we are, but um, that's who, you know, we were identified as at the time. It's hard when people and people in authority over you tell you that's who you are, that that's all you are. Mm hmm. Yet, you know, the Bible says that the Lord says, I've redeemed you. I call you by name. And I didn't to this day, hearing me, hearing my name, it just touches a part of me like it heals another tiny little scar inside my heart every time I hear my name called and um, for any reason. And so. So, yeah, so we got we got home that night. And and, um, so the next day was your funeral. And I realized I really had nothing left. I just didn't have, I mean, I didn't have anything left. And I also didn't have a future because again, we didn't have any money for college. So like I, I had no reason to keep living mm. and I was ready to die. I was just totally ready to die. And I told God, I'm ready to go. I want to see you. I want to see mom. There's nothing here for me. There's just nothing here for me. Yeah. So here's what I want to ha- have happen. God, this is what we're going to do. Let's make a deal. I'm going <laughs> to lay down and put my head on the pillow and you're just going to take me tonight. You're just going to let me die in my sleep. I know I can't kill myself, but I think you hear me that I'm not being a dramatic team when I say I don't want to wake up tomorrow. Do not wake me up tomorrow. You've had a lot happen that up to this point where it's most kids would not have been able to deal with it. And checking out was, you know, yeah, an easy and a good solution, it seemed like. Yeah. And the and it's funny, people that have heard my story, they'll say, you know, gosh, it's just so, you know, great that that you relied on the Lord. and um that that was, you know, the thing. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> that was by his grace because he he called me when I was 14. He called me on the mat and was like, choose you this day. Who will you serve? I had I had accepted him. I think I told you like 250 times as a growing up as a kid, because, um, again, the unhealthy fear of authority. I was so afraid that when I would ask for salvation that I had not crossed a T or dotted an I, or I said something wrong, or I didn't say a word or whatever. So, so when people say, when were you saved? I'm like, oh, I've been saved like 500 times. <laughs> you mean when was the last time or the, the first time? time? <laughs> it was probably last Sunday at church. I went down to every altar call. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I was just terrified that I was going to go to hell because I had not said or performed the salvation process right. Correct. And it wasn't until I heard someone speak on it as an adult and they're like, I, it was like, it was a room full of people. It was, felt like I was the only one there when she was like, it ends tonight that fear ends tonight, like one and done. You're good. And I was like, okay, I'm good. You know? I'm sure so. a lot of listeners are the same way. Me even as well, you know? Yeah. Lord, you know, yeah. <laughs> come into my heart, you know, don't let me die tonight or whatever, right. you know, just over and over because like you said, I didn't do it right. Just exactly. that fear. And it's not like I was fearing like between Sunday to Sunday, I was going to do something bad enough to lose yeah. it. It had nothing to do with that. Just that it you was didn't just do it correctly. I didn't perform it correctly. Yeah, yeah, not enough. Boy, howdy. If there could be a tagline <laughs> under my name, <laughs> not enough. 
And that was from, from the day I can remember. That's been my song. So, um, not anymore though, not anymore now. <laughs> and we'll get to that in a little bit, but <laughs> yeah. So, uh, woke up. So, so I said, please, 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 please don't wake me up. But if you have a purpose for my life, I don't even want to know what it is because I can't handle that right now. But if you have one and you choose to let my heart beat and my lungs to breathe all night and you wake me up, then I will know that there's for it and I laid down and I closed my eyes and I took a deep breath and you know you see it in the movies and it looks so dramatic it's not really dramatic in person it's like in one breath you just kind of close your eyes and go that's it I'm not ever going to open them again and Mm -hmm. I gave up my will to live literally gave up my will to live and so he woke me up the next day obviously (laughs) so I'm sitting here and the first thing I did I sat up and I was like huh (laughs) I am so still here. <laughs> you were surprised. I was so, no one could have been more surprised than me. It was really funny is the way the bed was, oh, and by the way, that my bedroom I was sleeping in, oh, yeah. Um, that is actually the room in my grandparents' home where my great grandmother, who I was very close to, she was, I was 12 when she passed. So like, and she was born in 1899. I just think it's so cool that I had a relationship with someone that born in the 1800s. Wow. <laughs> That's special. It is really special. Like we would sit on the couch and snap peas and beans together. I did that with my gram. Yeah, it's so <laughs> awesome. I loved her a lot. And anyway, the room that I was given, the only room they had extra was um her bedroom. So I was sleeping in her bedroom. It also happened to be the room that um so my great grandmother died in that room because she had a 10 year battle with Alzheimer's. Mm. And so she died in that room. My mom also died in that room. So death was prevalent in that room. It was palatable, now, honestly. Hard at age 16, 17, just yeah. be around death. And be, yeah. that room had a lot of memories, not yeah. good memories. When I moved in there, I mean, there were still the oxygen tanks from my mom. Mm. You know, the hospice bed hadn't been taken away. like Because mm. we had been, my sister and I had been sleeping on my granddad's fold-out sofa in his little, tiny, little, like, eight by eight office so battle jail cell oh yeah (laughs) but it was like moving into a different kind of jail cell moving into this room that honestly gave me the creeps like it for a long time there was just a real weird darkness in there and we just kind of prayed that way (laughs) so so, and painted and that kind of thing painted all white (laughs) i was like (laughs) i just need to be light and bright in here so um so yeah that morning i woke up with a very weird sense of hope in my heart and this was going to be my mom's funeral that there should be no way there'd be anything good about that day and i just know that it was this strange like huh he didn't take me so i put on one of my mom's old dresses because i didn't have any clothes except my sister's used clothes and um i went to the funeral and afterwards was my first panic attack i did not know what that was at the time and we talked about panic attacks and Ooh, <laughs> they are not fun. <laughs> heart attack or a stroke, it feels like. Oh, yeah. And- You're totally dying. I mean, that's what you think. At least at 16. And I mean, the, the back of my neck was prickly. You know, palms were sweaty. My heart was racing. My stomach was churning. My throat was closing. I couldn't breathe. And then people were talking to me and it was like that, like a Charlie Brown show where it's like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I could, I literally couldn't understand anything everybody mm-hmm. was saying to me. And I thought, I'm either having a stroke or a heart attack. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I um, went back to my granddad's bedroom where, or sorry, his office where we were still sleeping at the time. It was the very next day. And um, I grabbed my Bible and I had been wearing a lot of labels at that point in my life. And especially when you have like a single parent in the high school I went to. And then when that single parent is sick and, you know, and then I I used to take my Bible to school to a public high school. So that definitely didn't make me the most popular. (laughs) I was not going to win any awards. (laughs) And and that was fine. Um, So I just had a secret fear and I was like, all right, God, the one thing I can't handle is a label and I'm not even gonna talk to you about it because I don't want, I don't want anyone to know it. It's, it's my secret. It's just my secret. I didn't mm-hmm. want any, like I'm taking that one to the grave. Mm-hmm. And that was the um, label of orphan. Like I can, ha- okay, give me everything else. I just can't handle that one. Cause I don't want anyone to look at me with any type of self pity or lower pity or like feel sorry for me. I just didn't want anything to do with that. Yeah. So um, I held that one really close to my heart and I didn't tell him, I didn't tell anybody. So, 
in the middle of my panic attack and because I think I'm dying, I'm like, God, I need something to eat. I can't, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Like I'm, I can't breathe. Mm-hmm. This is serious. It's like food caught in my throat. Like I couldn't breathe. And so I took out the Bible and I threw it open. I was like, I need you to give me something right now, anything. And I looked down and it was a scripture I'd never read before. And it was Jesus's words, red letter writing. It's funny when people talk about, oh, my verse, you know, a verse. A lot of times they can just kind of be grabbing it out of the Bible because it fits. But it's not you have to look at the whole context that it's in. Mm-hmm. It's not fair just to pull because you can make the Bible say anything when you do that. Yeah. Right. So real big on context. And so um, it was contextually accurate. And he said, it was John 14, 18. uh, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And the fact that he used that word, I just like dropped the Bible. And I was like, (gasps) that was your secret. That was my secret. I was like, you know, my secret. How do you know my secret? (laughs) I mean, I just could. I was just stunned. I could not believe he knew my secret. And, um, it was the weirdest thing that happened in that moment. So that word orphan, you know, the enemy had really toyed with me and really like lorded that over me. Like you're going to be, that's all you are kind of thing. And in that moment, it's, it's, it's as if it was an arrow and God just snapped it over his knee and it just didn't hurt anymore. When he said it, it didn't hurt anymore. And in fact, I felt this weird, like power, like, huh, huh. Okay, I got this. I, it's just it's not going to kill me. <laughs> yep. And so I told him right then, I was like, all right, listen, <laughs> I'm only going to do this life on one condition. And that's you do it with me. Every I'm not going to breathe. I'm not going to live a second without you. I'm just not going to do it. So like I told you, I have lived every moment since then feeling like I'm on borrowed time. You know, I'm pretty open with my family that about death and like, I'm not always going to be here. No. I mean, I don't like go to a weird degree with that but yeah. like I've, I've never been one that couldn't talk about it that's a, it's <laughs> a reality we all have a birth date and we all have a death date exactly exactly it's and just I, it's facts yeah yeah and when you've given up your will to live and then the lord continues your life mm-hmm. that's borrowed time yeah and as i was sharing with you and you know i've shared on other episodes um there's several times i can look back to where um you know i should have died or suicide attempts that the Lord just did not allow me to go through with. Um, and then even last year, a lot of people don't wake up off life support. Yep. And so, you know, borrowed time, as you were saying, something else that we connected on as well. Um, you know, that and identity. And so our stories are different, but they also have a lot of same connections as well. Very much, very much so. And, um, I will say that, uh, with, Making it through that day and saying, okay, fine, we'll do it your way. I'll keep living, but you got to do it with me. You got to go. I didn't even know that Moses and Exodus said that. That's so cool. I wish I had the verse on the top of my head, but he literally says that. He's like, when, when uh, God chooses Moses, he's like, please don't ask me. I stutter. Please don't ask me. I don't speak. And he's like, okay, fine, but you have to go before me. I was like, that's so cool. I didn't he know usually that. picks the uh, ones who are least likely. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Moses was a murderer, you know, and stutter, like you said. Yeah. And Yeah. 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 And for me, it's like I I always believe that, you know, God, he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And the work he's doing is always new and wonderful and beautiful. He redeems everything. And so I was like, I don't really understand what he did with this whole like orphan thing. That's now not a a, a bad thing for me. I that was crippling you. It was completely crippling me. And I was like, what is this? And I was like, I know he's done this somewhere in <laughs> history. He's done this. And so. My adult life, I was searching the Bible for like a scripture for that. And I found it finally. And it was in the Hall of Faith that they call Hebrews 13. It's like by by faith, Moses, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, you know, Mm -hmm. down, down, down. And then it says, and I don't have time to tell you about all the prophets who rooted out enemies, shut the mouths of lions, escaped the sword, whose weaknesses became their strength. And I literally was like, ah, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. He turned a weakness into a strength. Only he can do that. Mm -hmm. So if he can do that, what else can he do? So, um, so if we, um, go launch into my early, uh, like my twenties, um, anxiety was still a thing. So God and I are rocking still, but boy, the anxiety was right there. It was right there with us. And, um, I started having a lot of anxiety attacks and I would ask my, I got married at 19. (laughs) So I was young. And so, um, I was asking my young husband, I was like, I have to go to the emergency room. I'm having a heart attack. 
And so we did that over and over and over and over. And one time when I went, I was like, this one's for real. This is for real. I'm having a heart attack for real. And so I went there and the doctor on call in the ER happened to be my primary doctor only because, um, again, like I'm on my own, you know, my I didn't have parents or anything. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know about like finding doctors and stuff. So when I had an, an emergency appendectomy at 18, um, I asked that doctor if I could just stay with, stay on with him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, fine. He wasn't, the, he didn't have really much of a bedside manner, but I was like, well, you know, you did a good job on my appendix. I didn't die. Yeah. So, you know, fine, I'll keep you. So he was the one on call. So we go in there and um, I was like, and cause again, with all the symptoms I already said, he comes out to the emergency room and he starts yelling at me in front of everybody. Forget HIPAA, forget any of that stuff. <laughs> He goes, you are not having a heart attack. I was like, and he's like, if you want to see some really sick people, then I can show you sick people in the back. You, I refuse to treat you. You need a counselor. Go home. I was mortified. Not not bedside manners. I was just like, did he just do that in front of the whole emergency room? (laughs) So I slink out of there with like my tail between my legs. I was like. Oh, I was beyond fear. I was livid. I was just like, who does he think he is? Oh, I bet. Who does he think he is? And I ranted for weeks about what a horrible doctor he was until one day I kind of came to the end of my anger and I was like, huh, <laughs> hmm, maybe he has a point. <laughs> so I. His approach wasn't correct, but. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do not recommend that approach ever. <laughs> but. Um, it got through to me. And so I called a really sweet social worker that worked at our church at the time in Tampa. And I met with her and I kind of gave her a laundry list of my life, a short run. And I'll never forget it. She just looks at me and she says, I think we have something to work with here. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't afford her at all. So she's like, business reasons, it's got like $5. And I was like, oh. Pro bono. I can do five dollars. <laughs> She's like, I already have all my pro bono clients. I'm like, I, I think I could do because we were putting ourselves through college yeah. and everything. I mean, so. 19, it's mm-hmm. young and, mm-hmm. you know, mother was in debt and that kind of carries on, I'm sure. And oh, yeah, um, you having to pay some of that. And it was hard. Yeah, it was hard. Not easy. Yeah, no, no. So this I, life is not easy. <laughs> it's really not. So I did uh, work with her for a little while and then um, tried another one for a little while and and, you know, at some point it just it came to the point where I thought, I think it's just kind of going to be my normal. I think I'm just going to have a lot of anxiety. My mom, everyone on my mom's side, everyone wrestled with it. I think it's just kind of my cross to bear. And I accepted it. And that's when um, some depression came in. So there's this home movie of me when I was turning. I think I was turning five and I'm, I was wearing this really pretty little white dress, the kind of like twirly skirt kind Mm -hmm. of thing with a pink satin bow and I had white patent leather shoes back in the day when like you dressed (laughs) up for a party and and it's it's there's no sound to it it's just uh, like I'm not that old it's just that one didn't have any sound (laughs) (laughs) so I'm standing there and all these neighborhood kids I don't know who they are but a bunch of neighborhood kids they're all around and I'm opening my presents and in the beginning I look absolutely perfect like my hair is all curly and my bow is perfect and everything and by the end of it, all the kids have all my toys and they're playing with all of them. And I'm just standing there and I look exasperated and my satin bow is like hanging down and I've got one sock higher than the other and my hair is a mess. And I'm just in, in the first picture, I'm like smiling. Mm-hmm. And in this one, I'm just like fake smiling. You know, I look painful, yeah. painful. And that little girl, I've carried her with me all these years of just kind of like letting the world just chip away and take away and take away. And I'm just still standing there trying to smile, Mm -hmm. (laughs) trying to stay in the game. And um, I will just never forget that look on my face as a little girl in so much pain. Yeah. For a lot of reasons, because this wasn't just about the party, but it was not it was not more than that. And I think a lot of people if they would get honest or carrying that around with them, myself yeah. included, um, yeah. you know, everyone is, yeah. you know, people just hide it and wear the mask mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and aren't true to yep. themselves. But if they would open up and share and, you know, with their community, it would, life would be easier. Completely. And I learned that eventually, but it took 
a long road and roller coaster for me to find that and figure that out. A lot of us have to just go the long road with it until we're just too tired to try to fake it anymore. Mm-hmm. Or someone finally cares enough to like, I'm not okay with that answer. You're not fine. Yeah. We're going to sit here until you, you know, mm-hmm. or you just kind of just give up and just be like, okay, what do I need to do to change? Cause at the time in that scenario of that little birthday party, you know, I, I didn't feel safe in my home with yeah. my stepdad. So that, you know, the people that you're supposed to be able to trust when those are the ones you can't, it, it rocks you no matter how old you are or how much you yeah. understand it at the time. Especially at that age. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so as I grew, um, the OCD got worse. Um, my fears got worse. You name it. I had a fear of it. Um, fear of driving on highways, fear of fear of everything. Um, but again, put on that smile and you fake it. Mm-hmm. That's not that saying that says fake it till you make it. That that was a lot of of um, of me. Uh, so Psalm 139 is like, my favorite passage in the Bible. And it talks about, except remember I told you, except those two verses at the end when like David has this it's, like weird squirrel moment. Yep, yep. <laughs> it's like two verses at the end. It's like, what in the world are you talking about? Anyway, the rest of it is my <laughs> favorite scripture. And it says, you know, um, you form my body, my, un- you saw my unformed body, my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And that's true. And I believe that for everybody. But it was hard to believe it for myself. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like I was made with broken parts, but I felt like I was made with leftover parts. Kind of like the scraps. And mm-hmm. kind of like, all right, well, here's an arm. We'll stick it on. Like I'm some Franken Barbie or something, you know, as yeah. a person. Um, but he, I believe that he lovingly crafted me. But I felt it was with leftover parts because in the middle of all of this, I always felt a little different. Just a little different. I just never really fit in. I mean, even in school, man, oh man, I would just sit there and stare out the window and just want to be anywhere but there. And I think that's pretty common with kids, but like (laughs) in the depth of my being, sitting still in a chair all day was like pulling my fingernails off one by one. Mm -hmm. Um, Just having to listen and listen. It's not the way I learned. I learned by doing and Mm -hmm. It was just, and again, a lot of people can, you know, relate to that. So a a traditional school setting was just choking the life out of me. Um, I also uh, really began to hear this voice of bullying in my head that you and I talked about. Um, So like when you feel like you're not measuring up to everyone else, this, this voice, uh, not literal, but this intrusive thought was just Mm -hmm. like, see, you are just weird. You're different. You're weird. You don't fit in. You're not enough. Yep. And that that really started to kind of suck the life out of me, honestly. It does. It does cuz then you start you hear it enough you start believing it. <laughs> yeah. And um so I was at a point where I was asked um to take on a writing assignment just uh, 3 years ago about writing about love. I'd written a bi- I have a Bible study that I've written. It's a 6-week study, 150 pages, and this is a follow-up to that. And I wrote the outline for it. I sat down. We're like, okay, let's do it. And it's about love. And it's about loving your neighbors and loving yourself. And Mm. I just sat there and stared at the monitor. And when I was talking, when I was going to start writing about loving yourself, these hot tears just welled up in my eyes and my throat started to close again. And I just slammed my monitor, my laptop monitor shut. And I just put my head on it and I just cried and I cried and I cried. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't write about something that I don't understand or know or don't believe for my life. I can't mm-hmm. do this. And, and I can say that because when I wrote the first study, there was a piece of it that I wrote about with God writing kind of like through me, yep. but I couldn't live out and I didn't want to be held accountable for something because ta- I'm not a teacher. But I'm just saying mm. like the studies in like eight or nine countries now. So like I didn't want, um, to be held accountable for writing something that I, that I was going to be hypocritical of that I couldn't yeah. do for myself. So I actually put that study down for five years, five years. I didn't look at it. It just collected cyber dust. <laughs> <laughs> and then God did a miraculous healing with that. And we got it restarted. And now it's an open free resource. So this one, I was like, I, I don't know anything about loving yourself. I don't know any, and that's when this whole like it cracked open this fracture in my heart of like how much hate is in there, you know, and some people kind of wear like self-hate or 
whatever they want to call it, like a badge of honor, like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm so not good, you know, just to kind of, I think for other people to be like, oh, come on, you're, Mm -hmm. you're great. You know, I think they just do it to kind of maybe get some sympathy. Not everybody. Some people. Yeah. 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 But this was serious, like deep seated hate. And I did not understand why. And so my life was about to take a huge left turn that really could have surprised no one more than it surprised me. <laughs> so thinking about the self-hate, I was like, all right, well, obviously this is not a good time to write this study. So I'm just going to put this down. And it's funny. I, I don't believe in like turning scripture around. I don't believe in misusing it. Um, one time he did say to me, uh, the verse that says do unto others as you want them to do to you. Right. Mm-hmm. We all know that. Yep. God was like, what about do to yourself? what you do to others. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause it was, that was clear that like I treat other people way better than I treat myself. Mm-hmm. And so with that, um, I started wondering why, why do I feel different? <laughs> what, what is this about? So he, um, he led me to an article on medium. Uh, it's a writing platform. And it was the article she said, she was 27 years old. And she said, I discovered I'm autistic or I, something like I've been autistic my whole life and never knew it. And I was like, oh, really? Like, how can you not know that? No way you can know, not know that. Yeah. I was like, oh, I got to read that. And I read it uh, honestly, very critically, very judgmentally. And I was like, ah, it's like not knowing, you know, you don't have a right arm or something. What? Yeah. And I read that. I'm like, oh, no, Th- this is like my story. Um, some of our lifestyle are very different from she and I, but like, what? I was like, she's in my head. She's in my head. What is this? And I was like, there's just no possible way. So curiosity got the best of me. And I started Mm -hmm. um, listening to Ted talks on women who discovered they were autistic as a woman, like later in life. Um, And I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, there's just Can't be me. Can't be. Because, you know, honestly, for people that aren't in that world, you just kind of have one stereotype of what that looks like. And even though there's a spectrum and all that, you just kind of have a, unless you know people that are on various degrees of the spectrum, mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know. Correct. So um, I was like, uh-uh. so I went back and I found more articles to read. And I sat down with my husband. I'm like, guess what? <laughs> I was <laughs> like, I'm going to be tested for autism. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> cool. <laughs> and I love that the first thing he said to me was like, great, whatever that is, it doesn't change how I feel about you. It doesn't change the way I love you. You got married like, at 19. Yeah. Yeah. You've been through a lot. <laughs> been through a whole heck of a lot. So I was like, okay, great. Well, I'm going to do this. And it was a lot of money and finding, you know, someone that um, would test adults is quite hard. A lot of it for kids. So it was three days of testing and every day I left with a migraine and, <laughs> and it was just grueling. And I was like, first of all, I hadn't been in a testing situation in a long time. I was like, <laughs> oh man. So, um, so we got through that and actually during it, I had another giant panic attack because mm-hmm, yeah. one of the, um, you know, I think math word problems are from Satan. No, just kidding. <laughs> kidding. Not kidding. <laughs> my brain does not compute them. <laughs> if, if my life depended on it, I can't work a, a word problem. <laughs> it's just like reading a different language. So, um, during the, the testing, there was something that looked like that. And I just like totally broke down. And it turned out that there, it, it, it opened a back door of my brain mm-hmm. to something that had happened when I was in grade school in a math class with a teacher. Um, just, it was a really bad moment with how I was treated with seven times eight. Mm-hmm. So um, basically I couldn't get it. I couldn't, multiplication came really hard for me. So um, I just couldn't get eight, seven times eight to the point where I was, writing, erasing, writing, erasing until I ripped the paper with the eraser and kids were actually trying to whisper the answer to me, but I'm a rule follower. So I'm like, no, no, tell me the answer. You know? <laughs> and I was the kid who was like, I can't hear you. <laughs> and that was me. <laughs> I would have sat really far away from you. <laughs> I'm sure you would have. I wouldn't have been giving you the answer though. I would have been asking you. <laughs> you That's funny. <laughs> so in those days, um, you had to sit with your homeroom class for lunch in the cafeteria. And if um, if you did anything wrong, if you were bad, you had to sit with the lunch class at lunchtime in which you committed the offense. So like hmm. it was like public shaming a bit because everyone knew who was in each other's homerooms. 
And if you were out of order, it was obvious. You're like sticking out like a sore thumb. I couldn't get seven times eight. And so um, the bell rang and I had to eat lunch with that class. So you got in trouble for not getting a math problem correct. Yeah. I had to sit in with their class as if I had cheated or hit someone or done something like that. you just didn't understand a problem. I couldn't get it. Mm-mm. And so I went home and evidently I told my mom what happened because the next day, um, the teacher, I still remember her name. I won't say it. She pulled me out of class and she was like, and I was like, oh, great. What I do now? And um, she's like, so your mom called me last night and evidently you were pretty upset with the way things went. And I honestly don't remember a whole lot of that. I think I blocked it all out about yeah. whatever I told my mom, but I got an apology from the teacher, but honestly, the damage had been done. So I had. It was public shaming. Oh, from someone who has. Authority. Yes. <laughs> it all relates. Mm-hmm. So I had major testing anxiety in math after that, all the way through college, honestly. I can see why. Yeah. Like I would have to go in the hallway to take a test. I'd have to come in at lunch to take a test. I'd have to sit on the floor to take the test. It was just uh, relentless. Math and I were not friends. It was crippling. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Um, just to be labeled mm-hmm. as bad because I couldn't get that math problem. It me forever. So even up to two years ago when I had this autism testing, there was a math problem. And I just completely like <laughs> the doctor had to stop and stop the timer and go get me water. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> like, come on, Christy, you know, <laughs> pull it together. <laughs> and um, that was hard. She. She says to, I had told her in the beginning that um, I was doing EMDR, which I know we want to talk yep. about. And she was so nice to me. She just very quietly said, I think it's good if you continue EMDR. <laughs> Maybe about this specifically. Yeah, <laughs> I was work like, through that. I was like, <laughs> I think you're right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and we have, <laughs> and I have worked through that. Um, so the last two years, I am so happy to say have been just two years of just healing. So it was 2020 in the in the year of the pandemic. And um, we're all stuck at home. Yeah, we're all losing our minds. We're, and I thought, I'm going to turn this time into something productive. And people were like, I'm going to write a book. You know, I'm going to train <laughs> for a marathon. I'm like, I'm going to get tested for autism. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you did something for you, though. I did. I did. And um, that's that's unusual to put me on the list that that never happened before. That self-hate. It was always others, as you stated. Always others, because I didn't matter. I just didn't yeah. matter. So um, one thing I found that. Um, oh, OK. So we get this testing and I had to wait a month for my results. My longest month of my life. That's but a I, long month. <laughs> I will say the very first day, day one of testing, I couldn't help it. At the end of it, I said, OK, listen. Between you and me, I know like we got to go through this whole thing and that's fine. Between you and me, what do you think? She, she just goes, oh, you totally are. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> you answered so fast. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but. <laughs> I started laughing at it. She goes, it's just a matter of like what degree. Correct. And yeah. I was like, oh, hey, okay, okay. <laughs> all right, we'll go with that. So finished the testing, waited the month, I go back and we sit there for hours and she has a seven page report. I'm like, wow, okay, this is pretty interesting. And so she's like, you're not, you aren't just a little either. I'm like, okay, <laughs> what does that mean the rest of my life? And so I, I asked her, I said, um, uh, my last question was, I said, am I an anomaly? Because I'm 50 years old getting tested for autism. And she's like, actually, I see like you walking through my door every week, at least once. Um, she said, your generation got totally missed. First of all, when you were a kid, no one really knew what autism was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in your child's generation, it was a boy thing and it was labeled misbehavior or hyperactivity, or ADD or whatever. Like you, girls were completely missed and they're just mm. starting to to be um, noticed now. And she says, no, I, I actually see quite a few middle-aged right. women coming and going. I just have always felt a little bit different and I want to know why. So after reading that girl's article... I just started really kind of dissecting my life and going, well, how is it that I feel different? I'm like, it's not normal to have migraines after every single social event ever, (laughs) whether it be a one-on-one lunch with a very close friend or a giant size concert and Mm -hmm. everything in between. And I labeled them letdown headaches. You can ask any one of my family members. I was like, and I would spend the next day and I'd lose a life of a day off of my life every Mm -hmm. time. 
or at least hours. I took so much Motrin and Tylenol. <laughs> I'm surprised I have liver and kidneys functioning still. <laughs> and um, so that was something. And I, I understand I'm an introvert. It's funny because my friends would be like, you are so not an introvert. You are like a huge <laughs> extrovert. And I'm like, I'm really just fake. <laughs> so, um, so the letdown headaches, the migraines were a thing. And then, um, I, I was like, does not everybody sit in their car before they meet up with someone and like rehearse things to talk about? Cause I do. Okay. Eye contact. That's really hard for me. Mm-hmm. That's not normal. Okay. And it just, you just start, you could take any one of these things and be like, oh, it could be hard for everybody. You know, true, true. Mm-hmm. When you add them all up, <laughs> it all starts paying. It's kind of like if you paint by number and a, a number one is the eye contact, you know, number mm-hmm. two is the social stress. Number three, and it goes on and on. And you start filling in all those, you paint all those colors and there's the picture that starts forming mm-hmm. that's undeniable. And so I was like, oh, <laughs> I think I'm autistic. <laughs> what in the world does that mean <laughs> yeah. for me? Like, and, and I really, I got to say. I really appreciate that my family and friends that knew about this, it was a very small circle that was, and then it, then I published, I wrote about it and published it on Medium. Um, Everybody was so supportive and loving and kind. It was great. That's how it should be. And a lot of times that is the um, way people react, but we get in our heads that everyone's going to shame us or look at us differently when a lot of times they won't. And I really appreciated all that. And you know what? None of that was helpful. Not at all. No, yeah. No, because I was like, well, what do you mean it doesn't change the way you think about me? What do you mean it doesn't change? It just changed everything for me. Yeah. I see myself differently. What in the world? Like, what? And it's kind of like if someone has a lot of weight to lose and they lose a lot of weight and it's all, but people kind of can't accept the new them because maybe they've adopted some healthier lifestyles or something like that. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh no, you're the one, you know, you're my binging buddy. You know yeah. what? Yeah. It's like, no people can change. And I really, really appreciate it that people were like, we love you no matter what. You're still the same, Christy. Oh, that one got me because <laughs> I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm different now. I am different now. Like I told you at Starbucks that it felt like not spiritually, but just for lack of a better way to say it, it felt like a rebirth. Yeah. Like I finally woke up. I finally and I do not mean to sound dramatic or poetic, but like the colors were more brilliant. The, the air smelled differently. Like mm-hmm. all of my senses were woken up because it was like I was carrying around this. Once again, this was part one of two of episode 49 with Christy Buttles. Please check the next episode for part two and hope you enjoy. Thank you.